Hello, Discast listeners. It's me, Anwar, with the next installment of the Discast podcast. Now, I thought it best to make the first official episode all about the man who started it all. That's right. Today's episode, if you haven't noticed by this title already, is going to be about Walt Disney. So, I hope you all enjoy learning about Walt as much as I did. All right, here we go. Walt was born Walter Elias Disney on December 5th, 1901 to Elias and Flora Disney in Chicago, Illinois. In 1906, Elias picked up the family and moved them to a small farm in Marceline, Missouri, where Walt lived a lot of his young life. Walt was a lover of animation right from the beginning, always doodling as much as he could. He wasn't perfect, but he loved it. His father, however, not so much. His father was a very stern character, always felt that Walt was wasting his attention and time doing artistic things and should be focusing on more important things like growing up. Sound familiar, fellow artists? Eventually, the family moved to Kansas City in 1911, where Walt started school at Benton Grammar School. There, he would meet a young boy named Walter Pfeiffer, who would introduce young Walt to vaudeville and motion pictures, some of Walt's favorites being the Charlie Chaplin films. It was also here that Walt and his brother Roy would have their first real jobs as paperboys, employed by their father who bought the route. In 1917, Elias would buy stock in a jelly producer based out of Chicago called Ozell. So, the Disneys moved back to Chicago. Walt was actually offered a job at the jelly factory, but decided to sell newspapers on the trains instead. Walt enrolled in McKinley High School, where he became a cartoonist for the school newspaper. Soon, his cartoons became more political and war-based as the Great War would continue on. Walt was fascinated by the war. He wanted to do his part for his country. He attempted to join the army in mid-1918, but because he was only 17, they wouldn't let him in. So instead, he forged his birth certificate with his mother's help and tried again with the Red Cross. Finally, they let him in, and shortly afterwards was deployed to France as an ambulance driver. Ultimately, Walt would never actually see battle, as he was deployed only a couple days after the signing of the actual armistice that would ultimately end the war. During his time with the army, however, he continued to animate. He would draw cartoons on the side of his ambulance to amuse the troops. The army newspaper, Stars and Stripes, would also publish some of his works. It was also here that Walt would develop his lifelong addiction to cigarettes. In 1919, Walt would return to Kansas City to start as an animator. Shortly after, the rest of the Disney family would arrive in Kansas City due to the Ozell factory flopping. Walt started working at a local commercial art studio drawing commercial illustrations for advertising and theater programs. There, he would meet Ub Iwerks, who would eventually become an integral part of Walt's personal and professional history. Sadly, this job would only be temporary as in 1920, both Ub and Walt were laid off due to declining revenue. So the two decided to start a small business together called I Work Disney Commercial Artists, which unfortunately didn't last very long. Walt then decided to take a new approach. He figured he could take matters into his own hands, and instead of making animations for commercials and theaters, he would make his own cartoons for the theaters instead. So he took a borrowed camera back into his little backyard shed and started making his own cartoons, which he called Laughograms. Eventually, these cartoons garnered so much attention from the local theaters that he was making enough money to hire a proper staff. Some of the first cartoons were based on classic stories with modern takes. He was always fascinated with trying new things on film and testing new methods, something that would become quite handy during his career as a filmmaker. Walt only had rudimentary training when it came to animation and filmmaking. He took a course at Kansas City Art Institute and did a few months in a Chicago art school. He would take books out of the library all about animation techniques and how to write story for film. In 1922, the first of major tragedies would befall Walt. 
His brother Roy developed tuberculosis and was sent to a sanitarium to undergo treatment for it. The family wanted to move to Portland, Oregon, but Walt wanted to stay behind and build up his business. Eventually, Laffergram's films became incorporated on May 23, 1922, in a small two-room office in Kansas City. One of the first big projects that Walt would undergo were the Alice's Wonderland films. This was when Walt really started to show his innovations. These cartoons would involve a live actress, a young girl by the name of Virginia Davis, interacting with animated sequences. This type of filmmaking would reappear in Walt's career down the line, and I'm sure you can figure out at least a couple examples of this. Unfortunately, this great innovation, while revolutionary, was also quite costly. It eventually drove Laffograms out of business. Fortunately, though, this supposed tragedy would be the catalyst for Walt to make the big move to where all the great films are made, Los Angeles, California. He lived with an uncle of his for a short time, convincing him to turn his garage into a cartoon studio. After arriving in Los Angeles, Walt did two things. First, he tried to get his Alice cartoons sold to anyone who would take them. No one would buy them. Second, he tried to get into live-action filmmaking, walking the universal lot just to hopefully get some job that would eventually get him behind a camera. Then, after weeks of zero luck, Walt finally got a win. He received a telegram from a New York distributor named Margaret Winkler, who was fascinated by the Alice cartoons. In her telegram, she says, quote, We'll pay $1,500 each negative for first six, and to show my good faith, we'll pay full amount on each of these six immediately on delivery of negative. End quote. All right, everyone. So we're just going to take a quick break here from Walt and just do a little pop quiz thing, just a little bit of interaction. Margaret Winkler was actually responsible for distributing another famous cartoon of a famous animal. Can you guess who that animal is? I'll give you a hint. It was a cat. If you'd like, you can tweet me the answer at cast underscore Diz. That's C-A-S-T underscore D-I-S. And we'll see if you get it right. All right, back to Walt. Well, this changed everything. Walt contacted his brother Roy in the hospital and told him what had happened. Roy actually discharged himself from the hospital, and the two went into business together to finish the films. And thus, the Disney Brothers studio was founded. And Roy never had another outbreak of TB. Walt contacted the Davis family and told them the good news. The family relocated to Los Angeles and began working on the films using only a secondhand $200 camera. Sometimes you don't need the fanciest equipment to do what you love. Shortly thereafter, Walt contacted his old buddy Ub Iwerks and offered him a job to help animate. He also hired a young woman by the name of Lillian Bounds to ink and paint the celluloids, with whom Walt would become quite smitten with. So much so, he actually married her in July of 1925. The two would honeymoon at Mount Rainier. In the summer of 1925, Walt and Roy put a down payment on a new lot available on Hyperion Avenue. This would become the site of their first real studio. At the same time, they bought adjoining lots next to each other and built their first homes there. Unfortunately, though, not everything would stay so good. Margaret Winkler would eventually marry a rather unhappy man by the name of Charles Mintz, who was also past ownership of the cartoon distribution. Now, Mintz was getting tired of the Alice cartoons. He asked Walt to come up with something new, and so Walt came up with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Okay, another quick quiz here, guys. Can you name me the video game that features not only Mickey Mouse, but also Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? I'll give you another hint. It was released on the Wii. Again, tweet your answer at cast underscore Diz. That's C-A-S-T underscore D-I-S. 
In February of 1928, the contract for Oswald was up for renewal. So Walt and Lillian headed to New York to strike up a new deal, which unfortunately did not go very well. Mintz told Walt that not only was he going to continue making the Oswald cartoons for less pay, but that Mintz had also hired away almost all of Walt's original staff except for of Iwerks. Mintz would also inform Walt that he was going to be giving away Oswald to someone else. Walt was losing his creation. Distraught, Walt and Lillian began a long roundabout trip back to Los Angeles. He sent a telegram to Roy saying, quote, leaving tonight, stopping over Kansas City, Arrive Sunday morning, 7.30. Don't worry. Everything okay. We'll give details when arrive. Walt. Close quote. Walt did what he had to do. Without Oswald, Walt needed to come up with a new character. So he started thinking. What was an animal that no one had done yet in cartoon? He eventually landed on a mouse. Mortimer Mouse, as Walt wanted to call him, lived for a brief moment until Lillian objected to the name saying it was too pompous. She instead suggested a kinder, softer name, Mickey. After returning to Los Angeles, Walt would present Mickey Mouse to Ub Iwerks and the rest of his team who helped to refine and animate the character. The very first Mickey Mouse cartoon was called Plain Crazy. It was done in secret, and it, along with the next cartoon, The Gallop and Gaucho, unfortunately would fail to find distributors. Walt wanted to do something new. Following the success of the film The Jazz Singer, Walt wanted to incorporate synchronized sound into the third cartoon he was developing. What he did was revolutionary at that time. He had every sound guy, the band, and every voice actor recording sound, music, and voice, respectively, all at the same time. Dubbing wasn't a thing at that time. Layering tracks just couldn't be done. And while it wasn't the first cartoon to feature synchronized sound, it was the first to have the sound consistently synchronized throughout the entire cartoon. Eventually, Walt would strike a deal with Pat Powers to provide the necessary sound equipment for theaters as well as distribute the cartoons. Finally, Steamboat Willie was released on November 18, 1928 to a resounding success at the Colony Theater in New York City. Audiences asked it to play again. A New York critic actually wrote, quote, it knocked me out of my seat, end quote. Pop quiz again, guys. Can you name another famous Disney character that made their first appearance in Steamboat Willie? Of course, I will give you another hint. It's a she. Tweet your answer at cast underscore Diz. Walt would discover that finding an adequate voice actor to portray Mickey would become an issue. He never found that anyone was the right fit. So he decided to just take it upon himself to do the voice. Animators that witnessed Walt voice Mickey felt as if Mickey was a sort of alter ego to Walt. When it came to marketing, Walt and Roy gave the rights to license Mickey Mouse to Kay Kamen. Profits of Mickey Mouse merchandise actually helped keep the Disneys above water during the Depression. Even after the success of Steamboat Willie, and now the infamous skeleton dance through Silly Symphonies, Walt would continue to keep his eye on the horizon for more ways to innovate animation. Unfortunately, struggles would still find Walt. Pat Powers was suspected of withholding royalties and wanting to take over the company by Roy. Powers eventually would do even worse. He lured away Ub Iwerks. After all this going on, Walt had a silver lining. Because he owned the rights to Mickey Mouse, he didn't have to worry about losing him too like he did with Oswald. But while the silver lining was helpful on a professional level, it certainly didn't help his personal life. After finally deciding they were ready to have children, Walt and Lillian began trying to start a family. But it wouldn't be that easy. Lillian suffered two miscarriages, which didn't help the overworked and drained Walt. 
This led to an emotional breakdown in October of 1931, so he and Lillian decided to take a vacation, just the two of them. Washington, D.C., Cuba, and even the Panama Canal. It was a blessing for Walt. He was finally able to just relax. He also tried getting into physical exercise, swimming, boxing, wrestling, which, like many of us artistic types, didn't exactly work out. One day while playing polo, because that's what all the rich white men in Hollywood did at the time, Walt would suffer a blow to the head by a rogue polo ball, almost as bad as getting a bludger to the face. Just think about that for a second. Since Powers was lost as distributor, the Disney signed with Columbia Pictures to distribute the Mickey cartoons. This granted them international attention. Soon, Walt would find Technicolor. Flowers and Trees from the Silly Symphony series was an animated short that was originally going to be done in black and white, but Walt decided to redo the entire cartoon in color. Flowers and Trees would win Walt his first Academy Award. Coincidentally, it was also the first Oscar ever awarded to a cartoon. Two years later, Walt would be awarded a second Academy Award for another famous Silly Symphonies cartoon short, the now infamous Three Little Pigs. Finally, things were looking up for Walt, not just professionally, but personally. Diane Marie Disney, Walt's first child, was born in December of 1933. Walt's little Los Feliz home was warm and loving with Sunday get-togethers with his family, friends, and even animators. Walt would eventually move from animation itself and not to something that would suit him much better. Story development. Now, here's where we get a different side of Walt. While the Walt at home was warm and smiling, Studio Walt was quite different. He was stern, strong-voiced, determined, rarely gave praise, and did whatever he could to pull the best possible product out of his animators. The Sweatbox was a small black box theater in the studio where they would show the daily animations. Walt would sit with the animators to watch their work and judge. The animators called it the Sweatbox because as they watched Walt, watching his every move and emotion, the animators would just sit there, sweating bullets, hoping it was good enough. Despite his stern exterior, Walt still had great faith in his artists. He would bring in teachers from the Schoenard Art Institute to the studio to teach his staff different art styles to help hone their skills. Motion and movement were Walt's main focus. He wanted his cartoons to be as expressive as possible. With all his newly refreshed and trained animators, Walt felt it was time to break out of traditional animated shorts and move on to something bigger. One day, Walt pulls his entire team into one of the sound stages, sits them down, and pitches them his version of the infamous story, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He acted out every bit of what he envisioned, describing exactly what every character would do. He had the film in his head before it had even seen a pencil. Sharon May Disney joined the Disney family in December of 1936. Now, I use the term joined deliberately here because Sharon was actually adopted by the Disneys. After a third miscarriage, after Diane and doctors warning Walt and Lillian not to try again, they decided on adoption, which, at the time, was very hush-hush. Snow White was Walt's main focus at the time. He poured every last penny he had into that movie. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves premiered on December 21st, 1937 at the Carthay Circle Theater. It was an instant hit. It scored the Disney company $8 million upon its initial release and became the first film in what is colloquially called the Golden Age of Disney Films. With the success of Snow White, the Disneys were able to pay back the debt the studio had, but also make back a lot of the money they had put into the film in the first place. 
In today's time, Walt would probably have been pressured to make a sequel, but thankfully he was ardently against the idea and continued to look to the future. Even after all that success, however, Walt never felt like a true Hollywood insider. Snow White wasn't awarded an official Academy Award as cartoons were not taken as seriously by the Academy. Walt was instead awarded an honorary award. One regular sized statue and seven little ones lined up next to it. Walt believed in the difference between cartoons and art. He felt his animated films were more art than cartoon. In 1938, Walt felt that maybe it was time to get the family back together again. He and Roy bought a house for their folks in the valley in Los Angeles and moved them from Portland. Unfortunately, the move wouldn't be all good. The gas furnace in the house that they had bought for their parents wasn't working properly, even after constant attempts at repair. And sadly, in November of 1938, Flora Disney would pass due to the fumes. Later that year, Walt would begin work on the Burbank Studios without his brother knowing, which today is the main home for Disney animation. Walt wanted the studio to feel homey. It had restaurants, a mechanic, a gym, even a barbershop. Then came World War II, and not even the infamous Walt Disney would be immune to its effects. Due to the fact that they couldn't distribute their movies overseas, neither Pinocchio nor Fantasia, the next two movies released by Disney, could duplicate the success of Snow White. They also saw their international box office income cease, up to 40%. The Disney company was $4.5 million in debt by the end of 1941. To help offset some of the debt, Walt and Roy sold some of the stock of their company. Walt was faced with increased agitation from his staff because of fear of layoffs due to the financial struggle as well as pay cuts. These actions would lead to a five-week strike in 1941. The strike created some big divisions between Walt and his staff, some of whom walked away from the studio altogether after negotiations were over. The staff were also upset at how they were being treated. Walt became a little pompous around the turn of the decade, and the new studio awarded him certain luxuries that just weren't available to certain staff, such as the in-betweeners and the women who worked in the ink and paint department. When the animators guilds and unions began forming, Walt wasn't worried. He always felt he was different than the other studio heads like Fleischer and Warner Brothers, so he wasn't concerned about the imminent strike. Walt felt he was awarding people the way they deserved to be rewarded. One day in February of 1941, he brings his entire studio into an auditorium to tell his side of the story. Needless to say, it did not go well. Quote, In the 20 years I have spent in this business, I have weathered many storms. It's been far from easy sailing, which required a great deal of hard work, struggle, determination, confidence, faith, and above all, unselfishness. Some people think that we have a class distinction in this place. They wonder why some people get better seats in the theater than others. They wonder why some men get spaces in the parking lot and others don't. I have always felt and always will feel that the men who contribute the most to the organization should, out of respect alone, enjoy some privileges. My first recommendation to a lot of you is this. Put your own house in order. You can't accomplish a damn thing by sitting around and waiting to be told everything. If you're not progressing as you should, instead of grumbling and growling, do something about it. The staff left the auditorium enraged. This would actually drive more people to sign up for the union as well as go on strike. One guy who did was a man named Art Babbitt, one of the main creators of Goofy. After joining the union, Walt ended up firing him, saying it was a personal betrayal. Walt actually got into a physical fistfight with Babbitt one day while he was driving into work. Walt was invited on a goodwill tour of Latin America by the American government, which he accepted to escape the stress of negotiations, which he left to a studio lawyer, Gunther Lessing, 
and his brother Roy, both of which had given the union leader Herbert Sorrell everything he had asked for. The studio did not exactly come out on top in this case. While in South America, Walt received a telegram from Roy saying that their father Elias had died. Despite struggles in the studio, work on Dumbo continued and was finally released on Halloween of 1941. Bambi would be released in August of the following year. And then the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened. This, of course, caused the American government a huge scare. So to ready themselves in case of any further attacks, troops were deployed and housed in the Burbank studio for eight months. At the same time, the army demanded training and propaganda films from the studio. Things were starting to get overwhelming for Walt as he felt that his artistic vision and his creativity was being hindered slightly due to the interruption in the studio because of the army's presence. Politically, Wall was pretty democratic until the 1940s when he switched over to the Republican Party, which, I should clarify, was much different than that of its current state. It was far more left-leaning than it is now. In that time period, aside from the threat of the Nazis, the other big threat was communism. Walt was obsessed with the idea of communism in Hollywood. He felt that that was the main reason all these labor strikes, not just against him, but also against the other film studios were cropping up. He didn't want to face the facts that perhaps some people just weren't happy. He felt he was doing everything in his power to keep his people happy, but it wasn't enough. Walt began seeing a competitor, United Productions of America, which not only featured more artistic animated films, they also housed a lot of his old key animators, including Art Babbitt. He would call them the commies down the river. Quite literally because the studio was actually down the river from them. In 1946, Walt was a founding member of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which was founded on the basis of keeping communism and fascism out of Hollywood. Walt was asked to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee regarding the threat of communism. He even went as far as claiming that the strike in 1941 was a result of communists and even branded Herbert Sorrell, the union leader he was fighting against, as a communist. After his hearing with the House Un-American Activities Committee, he jumps right back into work. He's looking everywhere for inspiration, traveling to New York and spending his entire time watching television to see if something new could be done with the new medium. Walt felt that the whole situation with the aftermath of the strike, the war, and his increasing debt due to the financial failures of the last three films in the golden era was telling him his time with animated features was coming to an end. He began looking at live action, the first being Song of the South. Okay, so we're going to take another little break here, and I'm going to just do some quick addressing of a few, shall we say, urban legends of in regards to Disney. <laughs> so I had asked some friends of mine to send me a few things uh, that they felt I could touch on, uh, whether they were urban legends or rumors and the like. Uh, so I'm just going to address those now. Uh, this first one uh, is regarding that great big rumor of the fact that Walt's frozen head resides underneath Disneyland. Now, there's a couple things about this. Number one, it's entirely false, and that's mainly because Walt was actually cremated after his death. Uh, so even if he, you know, th th there just would be no head for them to save anyway. And I think the other reason is because of the fact that uh, because Walt was constantly looking into new technologies uh cryogenics was kind of a it wasn't fully a thing but it was kind of an idea at the time uh and 
I think kind of I think people kind of naturally assumed that Walt was was looking looking ahead into cryogenics in order to save his own body. And so I think what happened was that rumor just started happening that, oh, Walt Disney, this man who is constantly looking for the future uh, or looking into new technologies, of course, he's going to want to invest in that. And so I think that's part of the reason why this rumor kind of percolated and why it's a thing in the first place. Not to mention the fact that cryogenics is just not possible because, of course, uh, when you freeze something rapidly in liquid nitrogen, uh, because our bodies are mainly water, the cells just pop and they just burst. And anything that, anything, if we were to cryogenically freeze something, it would just become a giant thing of mush. It just wouldn't work. So that's, you know, that's the classic one. Everybody's heard that one. Uh, there's, uh, there's something here about why none of the princesses have mothers. Um, that is a very good question. I feel I haven't really found a whole lot of connection with that. Uh, this person suggested that perhaps it has to do with painful memories and or abuse of his own mother, uh, which I can ardently, uh, say is false because Flora was actually very, very loving towards Walt. His dad, Elias, is more the reason, is more if anything it's probably more because of Elias because Elias was very very harsh he was it's kind of a dick really um in comparison to Flora not for and not that he was a bad father but just he was just very much a man of the late 19th early 20th century it was just that was just kind of the guy he was you know like 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 I mentioned earlier they lived on a farm for god's sake so he, he was kind of more that man he just didn't want Walt to have his you know head in the clouds kind of thing so I don't think the fact that moms are not a thing in Disney uh, has to do with Flora because, again, Flora was Flora was a sweetheart, uh, according to that. Uh, this one mentions beards. I don't think Walt had anything against beards. Uh, <laughs> I think it was more just very much uh, he was just a man of the 19th century, and in the 19th century, men didn't really have beards. Everybody was either, everybody had their, either had a mustache or was clean-shaven, and so I just think that tradition just kind of carried on um now this one's interesting it's regarding the rumors of him being a nazi and a pedophile i have never heard personally of any rumors or accusations of him being a pedophile um i know that his time with the kids during the mickey mouse club uh when he started that when he had that going um the kids all loved him they all Everybody called him Mr. Disney, even though he wanted them to call him Uncle Walt. But of course, uh, I, I mentioned I mentioned this later on in the podcast or in this episode. Uh, and yeah, I just I've never heard anything about him being a pedophile. Nothing. Uh, which, thankfully, because that would probably ruin a lot of dreams of mine. Uh, and of course, the ever uh, the big rumor that he was a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer. Now, I I firmly disagree uh and i'm i'm actually just going to mention uh something just coming up when i continue uh, the actual history of walt uh but also he was just so against that idea like 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 i said he was uh he was a founding member of uh the motion picture alliance for the preservation of american ideals like i mentioned earlier whose whole thing was keeping communism and fascism outside like out of 
out of their business. He wanted none of that. And so it, it wouldn't make sense for him to be a Nazi if he was so ardently against the idea of fascism in the first place. It just, it just wouldn't make sense. Um, and of course, the, anti, the idea of anti-Semitism. Now, again, this is something that I'm going to be bringing up in just a moment, so I'm not going to answer it now. Uh, but yeah, but like it, it's this is all this is all stuff that I think is just fascinating how s small snippets of things can kind of travel and build and be like, oh, hey, here's this rumor. And then it just lasts and evolves and just becomes something big. It's really interesting what can happen to a person's history after they're gone. Anyway, so I thank you to all the, to all my friends who submitted those to me. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's fun. It's fun to talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, so let's get right back into Walt. During the strike era, a new rumor was born that seems to live even to this day. The fact that Walt was anti-Semitic. In 1955, the Beverly Hills branch of the B'nai B'rith, an international organization dedicated to improving the quality of life for Jewish people around the world, wanted to give Walt their Man of the Year award. Upon hearing these allegations of anti-Semitism, they began an investigation into the subject. They ended up finding nothing to support these claims. Now, there are also claims of him being a racist, which, according to testimonies from his staff, were also untrue. According to the people that worked for him, Walt didn't care who you were. Your race, creed, gender, none of it mattered. Richard Sherman, a songwriter for Walt, you'll recognize his name attached to the original Mary Poppins for which he and his brother wrote the songs for, says, quote, I think Walt was the most even-dispositioned, even-minded human being I have ever met. If the person was a nice person, he loved you. I don't care what your color, your race, or your creed. Close quote. When it comes to sexism, I feel Walt was very much a man of his time. This, of course, doesn't excuse him, but it seems to at least explain some things. No one ever came forward claiming they were mistreated for being women. Mainly women worked in the ink and paint department because that was just the norm in that time across all studios. Again, this isn't an excuse, it's just a clarification. According to his wife, he always treated her with respect. He was always a very loving husband. Wasn't perfect, but of course, no one ever is. He also treated his daughters like princesses. He loved both those girls so much. Hell, they're part of the reason why Disneyland even exists. But, more on that later. After the war, Roy and Walt sat down and discussed the future of the studio. Roy wanted to be more financially conservative, while Walt wanted to keep going on new adventures. So the two ultimately found a compromise in live-action films. Seal Island was the first fully live-action film Disney would put out using footage taken of seals and other wildlife. It would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary. After that, a series of live-action nature films under the umbrella of True Life Adventures were made and were a staple in the Disney studio for some time. Into the 50s, Walt would begin work on his next live-action film based on the classic story, Treasure Island. This is not only his first live-action full-length film, but also the first time he did anything overseas. Treasure Island was actually filmed on location in Britain. Walt was still feeling a tug of animation, however. He and Roy ended up fighting about finances for the new endeavors. Animation costs quite a bit, and Roy ended up walking out. Eventually, however, Roy comes back and helps raise the $2 million dollars for Cinderella. Walt was also becoming concerned with his personal health, so he hired a nurse to help him out in his office, a woman by the name of Hazel George. In this time of Walt's life, hobbies were becoming a bit of a personal sanctuary for him, and no other hobby took over Walt's life quite like model trains. He would take other train enthusiasts on his staff to train conventions and the like. 
Walt actually built his first model train on one of the empty sound stages in the Burbank studio. So obviously, he decided to build a mini train in his backyard called the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. It was built to one-eighth scale. The barn he built in his backyard was modeled after the barn he lived near as a child in Marceline and would be his workshop for his trains where he would tinker away well into the night. Salvador Dali actually visited Walt's house to ride his one-eighth scale train. Walt wanted something he could control again. He was losing grip on his studio, his workers, and his movies. The trains acted as a nice distraction from all of that. This love of trains would eventually find its way into his major labor of love, Disneyland. But, of course, Disneyland is a whole episode on its own. Back in the studio, bureaucracy was rearing its ugly head. Spontaneous ideas weren't as welcome, and the focus was to remain on films. Walt was still there for the films being done in the studio, such as Alice and Peter Pan, but he felt his attention kept falling back to his amusement park idea. So he let the animators do their jobs, only really coming in on storyboard meetings to give input. Walt found a bit of pushback in regards to Disneyland, so he did what any grown man would do. He built a sandbox to play in. This sandbox was Wed Enterprises, Wed for Walter Elias Disney, and that was the main design center for all the attractions to come for Disneyland. The staff who would work here would become the ever-infamous Imagineers. Eventually, Walt would venture into the next big thing, television. His first Christmas special, which also served as an hour-long commercial for Alice in Wonderland, was aired in December of 1950. Walt would continue to produce television programs after that, only reappearing as host during the promotional episodes for Disneyland itself. The five-part Davy Crockett serial was developed for television by Walt. It sold merchandise for the show, scoring $300 million for the company, about $2 billion adjusted for inflation. Then he decided to make something for kids, by kids. He started the Mickey Mouse Club. Walt always made sure the kids were taken care of. He wanted them to call him Uncle Walt, but of course, that never happened. They just kept calling him Mr. Disney out of respect. Throughout the 50s and early 60s, Walt kept on providing new ideas for movies while at the same time dealing with the new park he had just opened. He was able to give birth to what we now know as the Silver Age of Disney films. All right, another pop quiz. Can you name me five movies that belong to the Silver Age of Disney without looking them up? Tweet me at cast underscore Diz with your answer. The summer after Disneyland opened, Walt was invited back to Marceline for a dedication. This trip awarded him the chance to reconcile with his tumultuous childhood. The steady revenue of Disneyland also gave Walt full financial control and freedom for the first time in his long career of loans and debts. As Walt solidified himself as a symbol, he felt a duty to no one except his audience, the children. During his television specials, he was always this wonderful composed character version of Walt Disney. Studio Walt, however, was stern and focused. A chain smoker, a drinker, he would cough walking down the halls to alert his staff he was there. He was a hard-driving boss and an imposing presence. He had expectations of his animators, and if you didn't meet those expectations, he would definitely let you know. Walt faced clapback in the 60s due to the fact his productions felt both whitewashed and a bit too soft for children, completely ignoring the real-life events of the time, such as the civil rights movement and the coming war in Vietnam. But still, Walt kept working. He began work on a ski resort in the early 60s called Disney's Mineral King Resort near Sequoia National Park, but would never actually happen due to preservationists. He also helped found the California Institute of the Arts, better known as CalArts, which was a merger of the old Schoenard Institute, of which he was a big financial supporter of, 
and the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music in 1961. Walt's next big project was the World's Fair in 1964. WED was approached by GM, Ford, and even Pepsi-Cola to develop technologies and attractions for their pavilions in the World's Fair. Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln was a huge hit because the animatronic was so lifelike, members of the audience actually thought it was an actor on the stage. Walt ended up with a spot in the World's Fair for himself, and he decided to do something new there. Something for kids. He wanted to make a boat ride. In nine months, It's a Small World was opened. After the World's Fair, some aspects of the animatronics and other exhibits that Disney had provided for their respective pavilions would make their way back to the Disneyland Park. Great moments in Small World are almost identical to when they were originally showed in 1964. So I think that's a nice piece of history if you ever make your way to Disneyland Park. I highly recommend both things. Uh, It's a Small World, of course, is, you know, it is what it is. We all kind of have an idea of it. But Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln is certainly worth the watch. It's it's okay. It's it's basically just like a series of sequences all about Abraham Lincoln. Of course, it brings up the fact he was a lawyer and uh, his uh, and him going and becoming the president, and of course uh, the Civil War. But the sec but once those curtains are drawn and you see the animatronic, and you see it stand up from the chair, it's it's so amazing the fact that that animatronic was built in the 60s you watch it as it stands and as it emotes to the theater and you just your mind explodes just watching it move it is it is so it is so cool and such an amazing example of true engineering it's it's really cool i highly recommend great moments it's only like a 20 minute show and it's a great chance to just like get inside get somewhere air conditioned uh because of course you know it gets stupid hot in anaheim and especially in night you definitely don't want to be standing in in broad daylight in disneyland like in the middle of the day for too long because of course it gets way hot but i digress in 1965 walt looked not just into the immediate future but into the future far beyond and began work on the florida project aka epcot the experimental prototype community of tomorrow Unfortunately, Walt would never see this vision realized. Walt had been smoking since the age of 17, and it would finally catch up to him. He was diagnosed with lung cancer in November of 1966, and only a month later, at 9.30 a.m. on December 15th, Walt would pass away at the age of 65. Two days later, he was cremated and interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. Roy would take it upon himself to finish work on the Florida Project, and Disney World was finally opened in October of 1971. Roy would pass away two months later. The last thing he ever said to his staff during a rough cut of one of his movies was keep up the good work, fellas. So, whatever thoughts you may have of Walt Disney, I think the one thing that we can, that we can really understand or agree with is the fact that he... He really, really was a genius. Um, whether you want to look at it at or as, uh, you know, with, with his constant desire to just look to the future and incorporate new technologies and some things that he did had never been done before and had never been done as well as what he did. 
I mean, like, sure, like, you, there were, there have been, like, other examples of, like, multiplane camera use or animated features and stuff, but it, the way that he was able to take those stories and really, and really focus on story itself and make us really fall in love and empathize with those characters on screen had never really been done before. I don't think animated features would be the same without him. I really feel that we all have a certain connection with Disney, whether it's the man himself, whether it's whatever products he put out. Even if you only like one thing, it's hard to get away from it. It's hard not to appreciate what he's done. You may not have loved him as a man. You may not have, you might not love him as a person, but I certainly feel you have to love him as an idea. I hope this was exciting for you. If you have any ideas or uh, suggestions or things for the podcast, please send me a tweet at cast underscore Diz. Again, that is cast underscore Diz, C-A-S-T underscore D-I-S. And let's see what happens. I would really, really love to sit down with more people and chat and talk to them about their love of Disney. And let's see where we go. Have a good one.